Alfred Lord Tennyson, The Lady of Shalott. Alfred Lord Tennyson became the most celebrated poet of the Victorian period, eventually earning over £10,000 per year. His poetry clearly articulates the ideals and the fears of the era, the Victorian zeitgeist, and also some of the scientific developments we have been speaking about. For example, Tennyson's great poem, In Memoriam A.H.H., published in 1850, touches on evolutionary theory years before Charles Darwin, whose Origin of Species was published in 1859. Tennyson came from a family beset by troubles, as several of his siblings suffered from mental illness and addiction to drugs and alcohol. As a student at Cambridge in the late 1820s, he was a member of an intellectual group known as the Apostles, where he met his friend Arthur Henry Hallam. This group encouraged Tennyson to publish his first collection of poetry entitled Poems Chiefly Lyrical in 1830. In 1831, his father died, and then in 1833, at the age of 24, Tennyson experienced the devastating loss of his friend Hallam due to a cerebral hemorrhage. This tragedy inspired his great poem, In Memoriam, written over a 16-year period. Its 131 sections cover a three-year period, during which its speaker moves from despair to gradual acceptance of his loss. Tennyson's dark days continued through the 1830s and 1840s. Hostile reviews, loss of money in a failed manufacturing enterprise, postponement of marriage, and despair. His friends worried that he was on the verge of suicide, but somehow he hung on. But things really began to turn around for him in 1850. In Memoriam was published, his poetry was much acclaimed, he married at last, and he succeeded Wordsworth as Poet Laureate when Wordsworth died. Later, a number of his poems, such as Idols of the King, contributed to a renewed interest in Arthurian romances. Before we turn to The Lady of Shalott, let's look briefly at a few excerpts from his poem in Memoriam A.H.H. that touch on some of the issues of his day and that he worked on for 16 years. Tennyson's 1850 poem clearly establishes that Charles Darwin did not so much as revolutionize evolutionary science as much as it articulated and codified what scientists were already thinking. Tennyson has a unique way of representing these theories poetically. For example, a quatrain in section 56 of In Memoriam reads as follows, Who trusted God was love indeed, and love creation's final law, though nature red in tooth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. The phrase, nature red in tooth and claw, became quite popular, it's still heard today, and was often quoted by both proponents and opponents of evolutionary theory as a way of expressing the concept of natural selection, or as it was sometimes known, survival of the fittest. An even better expression of evolutionary theory can be found in section 118 of the poem. 
Contemplate all this work of time, the giant laboring in his youth, nor dream of human love and truth as dying nature's earth and lime, but trust that those we call the dead are breathers of an ampler day for ever nobler ends. They say, the solid earth whereon we tread in tracts of fluent heat began and grew to seeming random forms the seeming prey of cyclic storms till at the last arose the man who throve and branched from clime to clime the herald of a higher race and of himself in higher place if so he type this work of time within himself from more to more or crowned with attributes of woe like glories move his course and show that life is not as idle ore, but iron dug from central gloom and heated hot with burning fears and dipped in baths of hissing tears and battered with the shocks of doom to shape and use. Arise and fly the reeling fawn, the sensual feast. Move upward, working out the beast, and let the ape and tiger die. End quote. Those references to seeming random forms, till at the last arose the man, and later to the last two lines of the section, move upward, working out the beast, and let the ape and tiger die, poetically and concisely express some of the mid-Victorian thinking about the theory of evolution. Turning now to The Lady of Shalott, I want to point out first that this poem is based very loosely on a character from the Arthurian romances. Tennyson said of his poem, The Lady of Shalott is evidently the Elaine of the Mort d'Arthur, but I do not think that I had ever heard of the latter when I wrote the former, end quote. Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur has a character named Elaine who dies of love for Sir Lancelot but in nothing like the circumstances that Tennyson describes in the poem, the magic mirror, the curse, and so on. He's improvised very freely. The Lady of Shalott is a very musical-sounding poem and the subject of a fine musical setting by Lorena McKennett on the album The Visit. I'm going to break with my usual practice and read the entire poem. Part 1. On either side the river lie long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold and meet the sky, and through the field the road runs by to many towered Camelot. And up and down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. Willows whiten, aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver through the wave that runs forever by the island in the river, flowing down to Camelot. Four gray walls and four gray towers overlook a space of flowers, and the silent isle embowers the Lady of Shalott. By the margin willow-veiled, slide the heavy barges trailed by slow horses, and unhailed the shallop flitteth silken-sailed, skimming down to Camelot. But who hath seen her wave her hand, or at the casement seen her stand, or is she known in all the land, the Lady of Shalott? Only reapers reaping early, in among the beaded barley, hear a song that echoes cheerly, from the river winding clearly, down to towered Camelot. And by the moon the reaper weary, 
piling sheaves in uplands airy, listening whispers, "'Tis the fairy lady of Shalott." Part two. There she weaves by night and day a magic web with colors gay. She has heard a whisper say, a curse is on her if she stay to look down to Camelot. She knows not what the curse may be, and so she weaveth steadily, and little other care hath she, the Lady of Shalott. And moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year, Shadows of the world appear. There she sees the highway near winding down to Camelot. There the river eddy whirls, and there the curly village churls, and the red cloaks of market girls pass onward from Shalott. Sometimes a troop of damsels glad, an abbot on an ambling pad, sometimes a curly shepherd lad, or long-haired page in crimson clad, goes by to towered Camelot. And sometimes, through the mirror blue, the knights come riding two and two. She hath no loyal knight and true, the Lady of Shalott. But in her web she still delights to weave the mirror's magic sights. For often, through the silent nights, a funeral with plumes and lights and music went to Camelot. Or when the moon was overhead, came two lovers, lately wed, I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalott. Part 3 A bowshot from the bower eaves, he rode between the barley sheaves. The sun came dazzling through the leaves and flamed upon the brazen greaves of bold Sir Lancelot. A red cross knight forever kneeled to a lady in his shield that sparkled on the yellow field beside remote Shalott. The gemmy bridle glittered free, like to some branch of stars we see, hung in the golden galaxy. The bridle bells rang merrily as he rode down to Camelot, and from his blazoned baldric slung a mighty silver bugle hung, and as he rode his armor rung beside remote Shalott. All in the blue unclouded weather, thick jeweled shone the saddle leather, the helmet and the helmet feather, burned like one burning flame together as he rode down to Camelot. As often through the purple night, below the starry clusters bright, some bearded meteor trailing light moves over still Shalott. His broad, clear brow in sunlight glowed, on burnished hooves his war-horse trode, from underneath his helmet flowed his coal-black curls as on he rode, as he rode down to Camelot. From the bank and from the river, he flashed into the crystal mirror. Tira Lyra by the river sang Sir Lancelot. She left the web, she left the loom, she made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom, she saw the helmet and the plume. She looked down to Camelot. Out flew the web and floated wide, the mirror cracked from side to side. The curse is come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. Part 4 In the stormy east wind straining, the pale yellow woods were waning, the broad stream in his banks complaining, heavily the low sky raining over towered Camelot. Down she came and found a boat beneath a willow left afloat, and round about the prow she wrote, The Lady of Shalott. 
And down the river's dim expanse, like some bold seer in a trance, seeing all his own mischance, with a glassy countenance did she look to Camelot. And at the closing of the day, she loosed the chain, and down she lay. The broad stream bore her far away, the Lady of Shalott. Lying robed in snowy white, that loosely flew to left and right, the leaves upon her falling light through the noises of the night, she floated down to Camelot. And as the boathead wound along, the willowy hills and fields among, they heard her singing her last song, the Lady of Shalott. Heard a carol, mournful, holy, chanted loudly, chanted lowly, till her blood was frozen slowly, and her eyes were darkened wholly, turned to towered Camelot. For ere she reached upon the tide the first house by the waterside, singing in her song she died, the Lady of Shalott. Under tower and balcony, by garden wall and gallery, a gleaming shape she floated by, dead pale between the houses high, silent into Camelot. Out upon the wharfs they came, knight and burgher, lord and dame, and round the prow they read her name, the Lady of Shalott. Who is this, and what is here? And in the lighted palace near died the sound of royal cheer, and they crossed themselves for fear all the nights at Camelot. But Lancelot mused a little space. He said, She has a lovely face. God in his mercy lend her grace, the Lady of Shalott. End quote. It's hard to resist reading the entire poem as it has such wonderful sounds and demonstrates Tennyson's skill with meter. He uses fairly short lines, four-foot lines, with a three-foot line after every group of four lines. Tennyson also employs a technique not terribly common in British poetry, what is sometimes referred to as feminine rhymes. Instead of ending a line with a stressed syllable, Many of his lines end with a stressed and then unstressed syllable. For example, Only reapers reaping early in among the bearded barley hear a song that echoes cheerily from the river winding clearly. Do you hear that? Early, barley, cheerily, and clearly end their lines with unstressed syllables as opposed to And up and down the people go gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott, where each line ends with an accented syllable. Tennyson uses these feminine rhymes fairly frequently, for example, feather, leather, together, and straining, waning, complaining. These metrical strategies help to vary the rhythm and give the poem some of its musicality. Tennyson uses a great deal of visual imagery as well as images of sound. A phrase such as, the bridal bells rang merrily, is very evocative. He employs many R sounds in the poem, which impart a musical and flowing quality as the R's roll off the tongue, as in, and moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year, shadows of the world appear. Or these lines, from the bank and from the river, he flashed into the crystal mirror, tira lira, 
by the river. The poem is often read as a metaphor for the relationship between the artist and the world, with the lady's loom representing art. The Lady of Shalott is trapped by circumstance, isolated from life and living in her art. This idea of living in art is a recurring theme for Tennyson. His poem, The Palace of Art, was written in response to a statement that we cannot live in art. The Lady's Mirror can be seen as the poetic imagination. She lives in a world of representations. Life is seen in the mirror, and she in turn weaves them on her loom. Shadows appear, suggesting the story of Plato's cave, with the people having their backs to the entrance and only seeing the shadows on the back wall of the cave. In part two, we begin to see a change, a movement from delight to weariness, The lady was content, but then she becomes half sick of shadows, and when she looks on Camelot directly, she is content no longer, and the curse comes. The mirror is cracked, and she boards her boat. Readers of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables, or viewers of the miniseries broadcast on public television in America some years ago, will recall the scene with Anne Shirley in which she acts out this poem, lying like the lady in a rowboat that takes on water and sinks in the river, leaving her clinging to a bridge and in need of rescue by her rival, Gilbert Blythe. Sailing toward Camelot, the Lady of Shalott dies before she reaches the outskirts of civilization, but the world seems unable to comprehend her. The only one able to speak is Lancelot. Is he truly sympathetic? or clueless as the rest in just admiring her pretty face. The two place names, Shalott and Camelot, are repeatedly contrasted, but repeatedly linked by rhyme in the stanzas. Usually, Shalott is read as a cloistered, feminine, magical, or fairy-like place, a place of art and representation, while Camelot is generally seen as the masculine and the real, Yet this is somewhat ironic when we consider that the word Camelot is associated with Arthurian romance, with legend and myth. And in fact, in America, the administration of President John F. Kennedy is sometimes referred to as Camelot. This poem raises an interesting question. Must artists remain detached from society, or does that lead to imprisonment by art? If this really is a metaphor for art and life, what does it say about their relationship? Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott.